Hey, Green Rush Nation producer Shea Gunther here with a quick programming note. It's just been another one of those weeks and we do not unfortunately have a new episode of the Green Rush for you. But thankfully, we do have a heck of a replacement because this week's episode of my podcast, Marijuana Today, features two members of the KCSA crew, with longtime host Chris Crane speaking with fellow KCSAer Sarita Wright in her first episode as a guest, along with journalist Jeremy Burke about the latest goings on in legal marijuana. You can check out Marijuana Today if you like what you hear over at mjtodaymedia.com. We'll be back with a regular episode of The Green Rush next week. Welcome to episode 393 of Marijuana Today. It's January 28th, 2022, and I'm this week's host, Chris Crane. How's it going, Marijuana Nation? In the spirit of getting serious about marijuana business and politics, this week we're going to be discussing Amazon's latest cannabis reform endorsement, the ongoing push for social equity, Thailand's historical reform effort, and a lot more. We're going to be a bit of a mishmash this week. So if you thought 37 seconds was enough time to inform the public about the atrocities of marijuana prohibition, just imagine what we can get accomplished in the next hour. But of course, I couldn't do it alone, so I'm joined by two of the smartest folks in the cannabis industry and the movement. First up, I'd like to introduce a regular guest of Marijuana Today. You know him for his outstanding journalism with Business Insider, reporting on behalf of the cannabis industry. Welcome back to the show, Jeremy Burke. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. Excited to do it. Awesome. Good to be back with you, Jeremy. And today we got a special guest, uh, a first-time guest of Marijuana Today. So let's everyone give a big hello to uh, writer, media creator, and senior account executive for KCSA Communications, my colleague at KCSA. Welcome to the show, Sarita Wright. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me. I feel like I'm sandwiched between two juggernauts in the industry, so I'm really, I'm really excited. This is like a cannabis rap song. <laughs> well, you're gonna do great. We'll try and uh, we'll try and take it easy on you for your first show. No, I'm kidding. We won't at all. But uh, but you're gonna you don't you don't need it. Okay. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump right in. We were also supposed to be joined uh, today by uh, uh, Sava CEO Andrea Brooks, but unfortunately, uh, she came down a bit sick this morning and was unable to make it. So we all wish her uh, a fast and speedy recovery. Um, but we'll jump right here into segment one, where we're going to hit a couple different subjects. Um, first off, e-commerce giant Amazon endorses Republican Representative Nancy Mace's States Reform Act, a proposal we've covered here on the show a few times. In a piece for Marijuana Moment, uh, Kyle Yeager pointed out that Amazon had also backed the Democratic-led Moore Act in the past. This year, they've come out in official support of Republican-led States Reform Act. Uh, the nation's second largest employer mentioned, quote, like so many in this country, we believe it's time to reform the nation's cannabis policy, and Amazon is committed to helping lead that effort. This endorsement, combined with a fairly recent policy of not drug testing for marijuana, seems to be on message with their newly found support of the cannabis movement. And they're even granting work eligibility to folks who have tested positive for THC in the past. So, Sarita, let's, let's uh, start with you here. You're the newbie. You get, uh, you get first word. Uh, curious, you know, Amazon claims here that they don't want to sell marijuana. Um, I don't believe that for a second, personally. Um, although, you know, they don't sell alcohol, um, although I think that's because it's, it's, well, regulatorily challenging. Um, but they're saying that this is not about selling marijuana um, and, and really saying that it's a, it's, it's a matter of principle. Um, but what do you think a large e-commerce company like Amazon can gain by b endorsing both Democrat and now Republican-led legalization bills? I mean, I don't know how much more... Amazon can gain. I mean, you know, the, the owners <laughs> in space at this point. So, but yeah, I don't think I, I don't think cannabis that, is going to take him to Mars, huh? Yeah, you know, and, you know, where, where else can he go? I, I don't know, but I do think that with respect to Amazon being, you know, such a huge global company, um, I can appreciate them 
taking this stand um, and just saying, you know, like, we just want to be on the right side of history. Um, you know, if what is if, if what are in these bills makes sense, then why do we have to pick a side? You know, at the end of the day, everyone around the world can benefit from this plant in some way. Um, I don't. I don't know if Amazon wants to sell cannabis. I don't think that they do, uh, but they already sell so many adjacent things, you know, but I can appreciate them uh, taking this stand and saying, hey, this this is a bill that was introduced. Uh, it makes sense. And yeah, it's Republican led, but everyone is smoking weed. Let's be honest. Republicans, Democrats alike. Everyone is smoking. Yeah. Yes. yes. It's, it's also like, a good bill. Um, and I say this as somebody, you know, it, I, I'm not generally Republican inclined uh, per se, but I mean, we've talked a lot about this on this show um, and, and I'm very much on record. Uh, I, as somebody that, that, you know, very much generally leans towards the Democrats, I'm kind of embarrassed that, you know, that this bill, I mean, this bill to me is substantially better than what Schumer uh, releases his draft bill of Kiowa. Um, and frankly, I think it's better other than the social equity provisions. Um, it's better than the more act, which is largely silent on how cannabis is, how cannabis would be regulated. Um, and it does a lot of good on criminal justice, right? Particularly on the issue of expungement. But, um, but, but keeping it back to this, Jeremy, uh, I mean, what do you think? Do you think Amazon's doing this just because they genuinely support the issue and want to be a good citizen, a good corporate citizen? Or like, do you think that there are some other motive motives at play here? Yeah. So, so before I answer that question, Chris, is Koa what we're doing with Schumer's bill? Now, I haven't heard that yet, and I like I like that because uh, that acronym is a complete mouthful to me. It is. I've heard others refer refer to it as Doa, which is probably a better name for it um, because it is it is it is dead on arrival. But um, <laughs> but yeah, sorry, Jeremy, go ahead. No, no, no. Yeah, no. I I do like that that uh, that moniker for it though. But you know. In terms of what I think, it's it's two things, right? I think you hit the nail on the head in the introduction. This is about workforce participation for Amazon first and foremost. Um, you know that everything I've learned, every, everybody I've spoken with has said that their motivation is really to get more workers through the door. They're growing really fast. They need more workers all the time. These are generally low skilled jobs, but they are often drug tested jobs. And so, um, at a certain point, you know, relaxing cannabis laws federally helps them make the case that they won't drug test. Um, they'll even do things like for people who have previously failed drug tests, they can get them into the warehouses or to be drivers or to whatever jobs they have open. So I think that is really the primary reason why they're supporting cannabis legalization. Um, again, that's my opinion. You know, this is not something we've reported, but they have been lobbying on it like quarter over quarter. And that that money they've been spending on lobbying in D.C. has increased quarter over quarter. So it's something they really are, you know, not to use an overused phrase, but they're putting their money where their mouth is. You know, the second thing, right, is they're really doing this in a nonpartisan way. The MORE Act could not be more different than Representative Mace's bill in terms of taxation, social equity, and all kinds of key pieces that we debate over that happens to show up in these cannabis bills. At the same time, you know, do I think that Amazon wants to sell cannabis? Probably not. Do I think they may in the future? I don't know. But this also does help them lay the groundwork to do so if they want. They can always change their mind, right? Um, I think Brian Huseman, who's uh, Amazon senior VP of public policy or, you know, one of their spokespeople gave a quote to the Washington Post said, you know, he basically drew a line in the sand and said, like, we're not going to be selling cannabis. But, you know, private sector companies change their minds a lot. It's not called flip flopping. It's called, you know, pivoting. And so I think that may be something we'll see in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think Amazon wants to sell anything they can sell on their platform, and if they can sell cannabis, they want to sell cannabis. Um, I don't, I don't buy that line that they're, you know, that they're not interested in selling cannabis for a second. But that said, I do agree with you that this is not. I don't think that this is about selling cannabis. Um, I think this is this is about this. You're absolutely right. I think you nailed it. This is about workforce. Um, you know, they're. They're hiring for the most part, you know, low skilled, low skilled jobs, people who work in warehouses, people who are moving boxes around, you know, around warehouses all day. And, and you know, a lot of those people like people who work in other sectors, right? White collar jobs, mid sector jobs, whatever it is, like a lot of people just like cannabis. And if you've got to hire a huge critical mass of people, you're going to lose out on a lot of potential employees if you can't hire people that consume cannabis. Um, and so I think that's that's really what this is about. Um, and hey, look, if we can get the you know the second largest employer in the United States and one of the largest companies in the world um, to be you know lobbying actively in favor of cannabis reform, 
that's fantastic, right? That's like, that's that's what we need, right? We can't get this. The cannabis industry is not going to get this done on our own. We need allies uh, out there in the corporate world who have way, way more influence than we could ever possibly have in D.C. And, you know, there are not many more influential companies out there than uh, than Amazon. I don't know. I mean, Halliburton, if you're listening, like we, we take your support, too. But uh <laughs> I mean, I mean, one thing that's important to note is that, like, when you're talking to a lot of cannabis folks, you end up a little bit in an echo chamber, right? Where you think that there's all this energy in DC and there's all these lobbying groups, which is true. But at the same point, that's really a drop in the bucket compared to other industries, right? And so, Chris, to your point, I mean, Amazon lobbying is huge. It's a lot more than any of the MSOs can really afford to do or combine all of the MSOs, all of the MSOs combined. Right. And even, I mean, even, even the companies backed by, you know, constellation brands like Canopy Growth, like, yes, they have alcohol backing them and there is a little bit more firepower there, but at the same time, like the overall pie of cannabis lobbying is a tiny compared to Amazon or compared to tech more broadly or whatever other industry that, that, uh, you may go off of. Yeah. Yeah. You can't compare. Um, all right. Well, look, that's, I think we'll, I think we'll leave the Amazon stuff there. We're going to hit a few different topics in each section. So let's, uh, in the interest of time, um, let's keep moving this along and, uh, head from, uh, a, a, a tech giant, uh, Amazon to, uh, the state of Mississippi, where in a WCBI report, the Mississippi house of representatives and Senate, uh, have apparently agreed on a proposal to legalize medical marijuana in the state. Um, now, of course this shouldn't be necessary because voters already did that. Um, um, but, uh, but uh, you know, this is coming after uh, a couple years after that initiative, right? Voters legal uh, voted to legalize in the 2020 elections, uh, but that initiative was ultimately struck down by the Mississippi Supreme Court um, over, I mean, a technicality of technicalities, really. Um, but now the fate of the state's medical program is once again at this crossroads, right? Despite the overwhelming support that this received at the ballot box. Um, uh, we now have to go through the legislature um, and see if they are willing to uphold the will of the voters where uh, this bill is now going to head to the desk of Governor uh, Tate Reeves. Um, now local advocates in Mississippi uh, would much rather have had the will of the voters respected in the first place. I think we could all agree with that. But they're all hopeful that patient access becomes a reality sooner than later. Um, so, Jeremy, why don't you start this out here? You know, given given the trouble that Mississippi lawmakers are seemingly having with accepting the eventual legalization of cannabis um, and, you know, coupled with the fact that this ballot initiative passed by, I believe, over 70 percent um, uh, just uh, about a, uh, just over a year ago. You, do you think that there's a chance that that Governor Reeves would actually veto this? So it, it was funny when when Mississippi lawmakers were sort of debating this bill. Uh, there are some images that came out and surfaced on social media uh, about state lawmakers. They literally were passing around a bag full of nugs, and some were sniffing it to try and learn about it. Others wouldn't even touch it. Right? They said that's illegal, and I won't even go anywhere near it. So that's maybe a little bit of a window into the thinking of some you know right wing or conservative Mississippi lawmakers. At the same time, Chris, to your point, 75% of voters voted for medical legalization, right? Um, that's in line with, you know, upwards of 90%, according to some polls, uh, uh, voters that support medical marijuana, nationally speaking. And so clearly the will is there. Um, you know, to my knowledge, this is what I've read in reporting, so I do want to caveat that it's not my own reporting. Um, you know, Reeves is not against medical marijuana, um, from what I understand, based on his public statements, yeah, I don't know if he's for it either. But you know, he did tout the fact yesterday um, that the new bill that that was put on his desk basically reduced the amount that medical patients could get from five ounces to three ounces. So that's you know a forty percent re uh, uh, reduction. Um, and they also added a lot of protections to make it harder for those under twenty five from accessing. They need more sort of documentation from their doctor. It's more difficult to acquire. And so basically, you know, it seems like he's not slow walking it, but putting sort of this rigor of safety and carefulness against it. Um, is this something that will pass? He did say that he's pleased with the new bill that the legislature handed him. Um, it's gone through a lot of revisions. It likely will go through more. At the same time, you know, I, I don't really see him rejecting the will of 70% of 75% of voters, excuse me. Um, but at the same time, you know, I do see the conservative wing at least kind of fighting to make it more and more restrictive to the point where they're okay with passing it. Again, these are my thoughts. Um, but that's generally how we've seen this kind of roll out in uh, red the new states. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. Uh, I mean, Sarita, what about you? Are you are you like optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Um, you know, what are you thinking about the chances of of this actually happening in Mississippi um, in light of the you know in light of the vote a couple of years ago and the Supreme Court decision? 
Um, I mean, I I just kind of go back to what Jeremy was just saying about the will of the people. I really think that that is important. Um, and I'm definitely hopeful that it will be upheld because, I mean, 75%, you know, right there. Uh, and it's just, you know, kind of a slap in the face to, to totally ignore that. And, um, you know, privy on all things Mississippi and what's transpired. But, you know, from what I did read, there are a lot of patient advocacy groups that, you know, this is medicine, this is life changing, this is, you know, giving them a whole new lease on life and to ignore um, what is happening, to to act like it's not happening, or Jeremy, to your other point, to have, you know, conservatives come in and try to make things even more difficult. Um, it's just, just kind of just, it's just unfair and it's really ridiculous. You know, the people have spoken, they said that this is what they want, this is what's helping them. So how can you best support them? That's, I think, what needs to be taken into uh, account and it should, it should pass. Yeah, I, I tend to, I, I mean, I tend to agree with all this. I tend to think that it will, in the end, it will wind up passing. Um, and, and I think, the, you know, I think the worst that we're looking at, I think Jeremy is exactly right, is the legislature essentially watering down uh, what, what, you know, what would have otherwise been a more permissive bill that the voters approved. Um, they're going to use this as their opportunity to make it something that they like better, which is probably a worse bill. Um, but to be fair, like they could have done that after the ballot initiative also, right? I mean, they could always go and pass laws that amend the law. I, I don't know off the top of my head if it was a constitutional amendment that would have made it more difficult. Um, uh, Jeremy might, uh, Jeremy, you look like you wanted to chime in on that. Yeah, no, no, it, there, there was, there was talk of a constitutional amendment. Um, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, but there is some sort of confusing argument that the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court basically struck down on that front. Um, so, you know, as to whether, as to whether you know, they will sort of reassert themselves in the situation, I don't think so. Um, but that, you know, that risk is definitely there. Um, and I think lawmakers are clear about that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think, and, and I think the fact, Sarita, you're, I think you're exactly right. The fact that this is a medical marijuana uh, bill as opposed to legalization, right? If the, if, the, if the voters had passed legalization by, you know, 53%, I think there's a good, and then the Supreme Court struck it down on the same technicality. Um, I think there's a good chance that the legislature would have just let it die. I think it's really hard when it comes to medical marijuana, when, when you, you know, the face of it are like literally sick and dying patients um, and it passed by such an overwhelming margin. Um, you know, these politicians know where their bread is buttered um, and a lot of their constituents voted for this. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of conservatives supported this. And in fact, the initiative was, was, was run, the campaign was run um, by a very conservative state legislator um, uh, with a staff made up of folks like from the Heritage Foundation. Um, so this is, you know, this was not some, you know, liberal group. This wasn't even like the Marijuana Policy Project, like swooping in from Washington, D.C. to come and legalize marijuana in Mississippi. This was a homegrown effort run by conservatives, run by their own colleagues. And I tend to think that in the end, you are going to get you are going to get medical marijuana legalization in Mississippi here. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, how how much does the legislature use this opportunity to water it down? Um, and, and, you know, I, I mean, one, one more thing to say on that. I don't think the final bill, based on what I've seen, is going to look anything like Oklahoma, right? Um, I just don't think that it's going to be nearly as permissive. Um, and it's tough to say whether it's a stepping stone to actual adult use or recreational legalization, like we've seen in other states as well. Um, it's Mississippi. It's the South. You know, these things take time. Um, there's a lot of old attitudes that, um, frankly, need to change before before they get there. Yeah, but also let's be fair. I mean, it's yes, it's Mississippi and yes, it's the South, but it's a state with a ballot initiative process. And once you've had a few once you've had a few years of a medical marijuana market operating in the state and people have seen legal cannabis commerce in their state and the sky hasn't fallen and they're used to seeing dispensaries, you know, in their communities there's going to be a ballot initiative for full legalization. And, you know, we've seen those passed in places like Montana, South Dakota. I mean, I don't know if South Dakota is as conservative as Mississippi, but it's got to be pretty damn close. Um, and I just, you know, I think at the, we're kind of at the point where now where if, if you run a legalization initiative in a presidential election year, like, I don't know if there's a state in the country where we would lose again. Maybe Utah. I don't know. But uh, but if, they, if this thing runs, if this if they run this in 2024, in Mississippi after a couple of years of legal medical sales, I think you're going to see legal, you know, I think you'll see legal recreational cannabis in Mississippi in, you know, 2025, 20, 2026, if the government allows it to go through and they don't find some other loophole to get the Supreme Court to, uh, to overturn it. I, you know, I, I do think that, that like South Dakota, I think those things will end up in court. Um, even if it's a ballot initiative that passes, I, I do, I do see that ending up in court. 
that being said, um, you know, I, I do agree with you, right? I, I think it's pretty clear the sky hasn't fallen. It's pretty clear the economic benefits. Um, a lot of lawmakers and state, especially in state houses, are kind of looking for easy tax revenue, easy money, and and here it's kind of sitting right there. Yeah. Uh, well, and South Dakota is South Dakota is also a good one to look at to you know show that like, hey, there are governors and politicians that are willing to just you know, blatantly violate the will of the people to try and overturn a ballot initiative. So, you know, shame on you, Christy Nome. I'm sure you're, I'm sure you're listening, but, um, all right, <laughs> let's, uh, why don't we, why don't, why don't we, why don't we leave it there? Uh, wrap up this first segment. When we come back, we will discuss the latest with Louisiana Senate hopeful Gary Chambers Jr. And the first talks of how New York social equity fund from their adult use marijuana program could be used. But first we'll hear a word from Shay Gunther about one of this week's sponsors whose support makes this show possible. We're very thankful to have the support of our friends over at Hedgerow Analysis. If your legal marijuana company needs location-specific data-centered projections to help you plan and grow your business, look no further than Hedgerow Analysis. They have all kinds of fancy computer models backed up by smart blocks of relevant data to help you work out things like where the best place to build your dispensary would be. Or maybe you need help citing a distribution network to ensure maximum profitability for a delivery service. Whatever your location-based strategic problems are, it's likely that Hedgerow Analysis can help you solve them. Pop over to hedgerowanalysis.com to learn more about the company's capabilities and to get in touch. That's hedgerowanalysis.com. Well, we're back, and let's start segment two with a story that's been pretty widely covered, but I don't think we've covered it yet here on uh, Marijuana Today. Um, the story was covered by staff writer Tyler Bridges at The Advocate in a campaign ad that has gained almost 7 million views on Twitter, which hopefully will uh, translate into some votes. Activist and Louisiana Senate hopeful Gary Chambers Jr. is shown blazing a quite adequately rolled backwoods blunt while also informing viewers about the ravages of the decades-long drug war. Chambers also points out the racial disparities in mar marijuana arrests that black people have been plagued with for far too long. Um, and he does it in a way that's very personal. For those who haven't seen, Chambers himself is African-American um, and talks quite personally about his own use um, and the impact that it's had on folks who look like him. Now, with a steep incline to the top, uh, Chambers has picked up his first key supporter in his campaign for Senate. Departing state representative and former legislative black caucus leader Ted James revealed his endorsement for Chambers just this past Thursday. Um, so it's a pretty big, uh, pretty big endorsement for somebody who is hoping to be uh, a, a defeat, a, a difficult incumbent to, uh, to to defeat in a in a tough Senate race. So, Sarita, first off, what did you think of Mr. Chambers ad? And and, and then how important do you think this endorsement would be to his chances of winning a second uh, a, a Senate seat in Louisiana? Um, well, I, I definitely was, am a fan of the ad. I've seen it multiple times. I've shared it multiple times. Um, it's so good. I, I definitely think, uh, it was a bold move. I think it was a very brave move and I think it was necessary. Um, you know, we've spoken earlier about, you know, just old mentalities, outdated mindsets and this is actual a push forward. You know, someone is out coming out proud about it, but also like you can't ignore the facts that he also addressed in that video. You know, uh, black people are four times more likely to get arrested. Like it is 2022. Um, and so I, I've seen a lot of people kind of just sit on the fact that, oh, you know, he's smoking weed, but like now you're not even listening to what he's saying. And uh, personally, I think he articulated, you know, very, a lot of points very, very well. I think the endorsement um, is also very, very helpful. 
um, especially someone coming from, you know, the Legislative Black Caucus, um, you know, NAACP, a lot of those organizations can also be very, very conservative. And, you know, they, they come from a generation where, um, you know, the, the war on drugs, like it, it hit them personally and very hard. So even now we have, you know, so much of the country that is excited and would like to see cannabis legalized. There is still a tremendous group of people who are still very much against it. So I think having that support is very important. The only thing that I would like to see more of is instead of people who are outgoing or retired, I would like to see, you know, people who are sitting in these seats and positions currently to come out and support. I think that that would also be very, very helpful and could actually strengthen his chances of being elected. Um, you know, the endorsement is great, but like you're leaving, you know, you're not, you're not here anymore. Um, and, you know, that happens so often. Um, you know, how many times have we seen people, I, I'm trying to think, uh, you guys know the, the guy who was, I don't want to say speaker of the house, but he, so long, his whole career, he was totally against it. Then he gets out and now he's investing and it's like, Bain, now, John, come on, John, like, John Boehner. Right. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> now, come on uh, now. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, he's know? on the board of acreage. Uh, yeah. It's, it's just, you know, you know, you know, we, we cannot be afraid. We know that this plant has, you know, healing potential. We've seen it. We know it. And so, you know, to continue to have also more leaders, I hope more people come out um, and, and, and show up to these, um, you know, and, and run for office that, that normally maybe would not. I think that this is also helpful for them to see that this is also something that is possible for them. Yeah, I mean that 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 was really what struck me about this ad. It's the the authentic the authenticity of it, right? The fact that like like that was a for real blunt that he was smoking there for one, right? Like yeah, and and he knew what he was doing smoking it, right? I mean I know you did like this was not this was not like you know Joe, or, or uh, was it Elon Musk on on the Joe Rogan podcast where he just kind of like swirled it around his mouth a little bit and put and, and, and bush it out like we all, we all saw you Elon we knew what you did there like you didn't inhale that um like this guy was this this guy knows how to smoke a blunt um but he but but to you know but he did it in a way that was not gimmicky which is hard to do for something like this right especially in a conservative area like Louisiana right to come out and to smoke a blunt in an ad and to do it while you're talking about the way that uh, the, the way that cannabis prohibition and enforcement has impacted the black community, right? And then to bring it home at the end to talk about, you know, marijuana smokers like me, um, I thought was really cool and real authentic. You know, as far as the endorsement goes, I mean, Jeremy, I'd, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this as well. I, I'm a little more skeptical about how important this is, um, you know, partly because of what Sarita just said, that it's, you know, it's coming from somebody who's outgoing. Um, but also from my, my read, and Jeremy, you may have a better sense of this than I do, my read of the situation is, um, you know, it's, a, it's one of the, what they call the jungle primary, right? So everybody's on the same ballot in November, and then the top two go to a runoff. Um, and you have a few Democrats... Uh, uh, who are vying to be the you know the Democrat in the race? Um, he Gary Chambers is not, or at least coming into this, was not considered the front runner. Um, there's another Democrat whose name is escaping me, but a you know more moderate white Democrat uh, was largely seen as the you know sort of the Democratic front runner. Um, so I mean I just wonder you know being being the most prominent black. Uh, candidate in the race amongst the Democrats, if getting the endorsement of the head of the Black Caucus is really going to help all that much, as opposed to say getting the endorsement of like, you know, the Senate Minority Leader uh, or something, or, or somebody who's sort of seen as more moderate uh, within the party. Um, but I'm curious, what do you think all of this means for his chances? Right? I mean, cer certainly seven million Twitter views can't hurt him, right? Yeah. No. No. Look, I mean, uh, you know, again, I'm not a pundit, right? Um, but again, this is a very progressive individual running for the Senate seat in Louisiana, right? And a very conservative um, state. And the reality very is very conservative state. The reality is whatever Democrat winds up being the number two in that in that in that yeah. primary or whatever, it, it, whoever winds up going to the runoff is probably going to lose to Kennedy. Right. Right. So. So. Yeah. I mean, just to sort of hammer that point home. I mean, you know. Chambers, it was a very well articulated ad. I think he did a really good job. Like Sarita said, you know, black people are four times more likely to be arrested for, than white people for, for smoking cannabis. I mean, it's, it's really an appalling statistic. It makes absolutely no sense. Um, he also articulated a point that um, every 37 seconds, someone gets arrested um, for, for using cannabis in the US, and the ad was 37 seconds long. So, you know, more power to him. He did a really great job. It's a really smart ad. Um, I think it did really well, and it was a great publicity stunt at the end of the day, right? It got a lot of social engagement. Um, we know who he is now, right? I don't normally follow Senate races in Louisiana, or I, I do, but I'm a bit of a nerd. So um, most people don't usually follow Senate races in Louisiana. 
that being said, you know, the, the person he's running against for the Democratic ballot, you know, he's like an ex-Air Force pilot, Luke, Luke Mixon. He's very sort of moderate, um, almost could be a Republican on, on some level. And so um, to me, it seems like his chances are very low. That being said, you know, having those endorsements helps. Um, having any endorsements could only help his case. Um, but I really don't think that it's likely he sort of wins and, and gets to actually face Kennedy. Um, that being said, I'd love to be proven wrong. Um, you know, I'd love Louisianans to, to show me wrong and, and to tell me how I'm wrong. Um, but uh, as of right now, I just don't, uh, I don't really see it. And that's my opinion. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, I think it's fair. I mean, I, I hope we're all wrong here. Um, I, you know, I will be, personally making a contribution to his campaign. I hope others do the same um, because I think what he's doing is brave and necessary. And even if he doesn't win, hopefully it inspires other politicians in other parts of the country to talk as openly about uh, their cannabis use and the and, and the broader context in which it falls. Um, and I just I can't recall a politician doing this as well as he did in that ad um, and speaking to it the way that he has. And so um, if nothing else, even if he doesn't wind up the next senator, which it sounds like is, you know, it's probably not going to happen, uh, even if he winds up, you know, being the top Democrat, he's, you know, he, he's going to be a Democrat trying to trying to beat an incumbent Republican in a conservative state in what's likely going to be a Republican wave, wave your election. Um, pretty uphill battle. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of good that can come out of this. And, you know, if he doesn't win this race, uh, maybe there's, you know, there's something else in his future um, uh, uh, state legislature, uh, con congressional seat in a, in, a, in a more friendly district. Who knows? Um, yeah. And, and, and hey, look, like like Doug Jones managed to win in Alabama. Um, so there is there is somewhat of a precedent. It's obviously a very different case well, uh, because the man I, he's running against. I, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I, I, there, there, <laughs> as far as I know, I don't think Kennedy's a pedophile. Um, no, and no. Unfortunately, that's so. there. I'm not. That, that, that seems to be what it takes to, to, to lose yeah. as a Republican in a, in a deep South state these days. <laughs> that's right. I mean, stranger things yeah. have, have definitely happened in the world right. of politics. So, um, but I, I agree with you, Chris, this, this is not going to be the last that we see of him. And hopefully this does um, inspire some more meaningful dialogue and more people coming out to support. And um, I'm definitely going to support his campaign as well. And Jeremy, I, like you, I had no idea who this man was until just a couple of days ago. And I was like, oh, oh okay. So. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I would bet you about 6.99. Yeah, I would bet you about 6.99 million of those 7 million Twitter views had no idea who he was before they saw this ad. So he has gotten himself a lot of good publicity uh, on, uh, on this one. Um, but let's let's move it along here, um, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, from a, a, a black man running on this issue in the South to um, uh, to uh, a northern state in New York. Um, where they're trying to deal with some of these historical wrongs that Mr. Chambers spoke about. Um, uh, this article comes from the Time Union's Rebecca Ward. During the first New York State Cannabis Control Board meeting of the year, uh, discussions on the social equity funding efforts for the state's uh, adult use cannabis program were somewhat clarified. Uh, the proposed $200 million to help fuel social equity licensing partly comes from the program's sales, but we're left to speculate on who the private sources of this will be. Uh, another one of the main concerns brought up during this meeting was sustainability. Uh, we've talked in this show a lot about uh, before about how once social equity applicants get licensed, uh, there has to be some kind of ongoing support to keep these businesses afloat, right? It's one thing to get licenses to social equity uh, uh, applicants. It's a whole other thing to make sure that they have the resources to be successful and compete in the market. Um, and of course, this all starts with education, with access to capital, um, and without one, right, the other doesn't really work that well. So uh, Sarita, let's bring this back to you. Do you think that New York should take a page out of Massachusetts' book when it comes to social equity? Um, and and how do you think that upfront funding can be secured here? Right, this has been a real problem, I think, with most of the social equity programs where you, know, you get folks' licenses, but how do you ensure that they have access to the resources that they need to be successful? And can you – and is there actually a way to do this? Right. I mean um – I think Massachusetts has done a great job, like shout out to Shailene. Um, she's definitely done great work. I think also um, places like Oakland have done a lot of really good work um, in coming up with social equity programs that are mostly, that's most important that are funded because that access to capital is one of the biggest barriers. But I think that, you know, at the end of the day, there's certain things that can be done, like, um, 
access to grants, waiving, you know, certain fees, um, making sure that, you know, uh, minority applicants, you know, have some sort of runway, whether that is on certain types of licenses or, um, you know, having their stores open for a period of time. You know, if I open up a store and then Men Men opens up a store the same week, like, let's be honest, you know. Um, so, you know, if, you, if you're going to have these equity programs, then there's a lot of things that you have to consider. And it goes beyond, you know, race and gender. You know, how are people going to get supported? Where's the money going to come from? And then, you know, in terms of funding up front, again, I think about what Oakland was able to do. And they have the, the workforce initiative, you know, that is funded by Oakland. Um, and that is helping black and brown operators to get their businesses up and running, do research, have access to uh, funding, kitchens, and, and just everything that they need so that they can actually succeed in this. Um, you know, the taxes are incredibly high. Uh, access to, to land and uh, places where you can actually even put up a dispensary is just absolutely ridiculous. And the average person who may want to be in this industry, they don't have that money. So, um, you know, I feel like a lot of these social equity programs are usually an afterthought. And I think the consideration has to come up front um, because then, you know, then it just keeps getting ignored. And I also think that this idea of social equity should be something that is just an industry standard. We should all be thinking about it, um, you know, whether that's getting people in on the executive level, on the creative level. Um, there's just so many ways that we can make, the, make this happen in terms of other ways to get upfront funding. You know, if you're not going to get it from, you know, this, the city then, you know, I think about things like um, or MSOs like Columbia Care and the work that they've done in Virginia to work with local organizations that are doing some of that groundwork, doing cannabis um, licensing and partnering with other, other local advocates and educators to help strengthen uh, the social equity programs that they do have in place or that they're working towards. So um, but again, you know, it has to be front of mind. It has to be top of mind. It can't be an afterthought. And um, I think another great resource that is out there is um, Shailene put together a playbook. She dropped it uh, in December of last year, but it's a great, you know, short ebook on different ways that you can implement social equity, different considerations that you want to have. And then also, you know, you can't have you can't dismiss the people who are already there laying the groundwork and fighting for this. Um, sometimes we, these social equity conversations come up and the, the higher you go, the, the less of us are like in the rooms. And then again, things just tend to never happen. Like you told me we were going to do it. And then, but I wasn't in the room. So, you know, we have to make sure that as these conversations actually start to take form and shape and become life, that people are still in those rooms and that their considerations and things are being taken in uh, that they what they're saying is being taken into consideration. Yeah, no, that's the, that last point I think is a, is a, is, is absolutely critical. Um, I mean, the last thing you need, a, you know, a bunch of, you know, a bunch of like white cannabis executives making these decisions on their own um, or, or even, you know, regulators that, you know, that, that don't, you know, that don't represent diverse viewpoints and, and, and uh, just, you know, diverse people. Um, I will say I am probably I'm less optimistic, I think, than you are uh, on some of this stuff. I'm just not sure a state based social equity program can really be successful. And that's not to say we shouldn't try. Like, of course, we of course we should. Um, right. I mean, should be doing everything we can to get licenses in the hands of folks who most deserve it uh, from community you know, from communities that have been most impacted. Um, but I look at something like New York. And you're talking about a $200 million fund um, to help fund these social equity entrepreneurs. And that sounds like a lot of money. And yes, like $200 million is a lot of money. I'd love to have $200 million, um, right? But, uh, you know, wouldn't we all? But the reality is, like, there's going to be billions of dollars spent to get these facilities up and running. You know, one grow, it's like that, like that, that, that $200 million would basically fund 10 cultivation facilities, Right. If you're talking about a cultivation facility of any size, right, you're talking about a you know 20-ish million dollar project. Um, not to mention all you know each of the dispensaries, a million plus dollars to get up and running. Um, and so you can do a lot of good with that, but without access to real lending and you know, institutional lending, and this is you know this is where the the conversation in DC gets so frustrating, um, and where I think there's the disconnect between some of the you know the activists that don't have 
a business background um, and groups like the Minority Cannabis Business Association, who's been actively lobbying to pass safe banking, saying the biggest problem for social equity operators right now is there's no there's no money. And these programs are, you know, not that big, right? Massachusetts did a great job of getting licenses to equity, uh, equity licensees. So is Oakland. So the other places you've mentioned, but none of these places have figured out how to get them really the access to the capital that they need. I know, Jeremy, they're they're talking a lot here, but what are are your thoughts on this? Do you think this can work in New York? Um, Do you think it's possible anywhere without, you know, access to, to traditional lending institutions? So I I think Sarita hit hit the nail on the head when she said it's all about runway, right? So Chris, as you kind of laid out, $200 million is a lot of money. Um, but if you're an MSO, I mean, you, you can raise, like we just saw Truly this morning, raise $75 million in private placement, right? That was, you know, a couple of weeks of work, a couple of weeks of talking to Canaccord, Genuity, and other investors. So $200 million goes fast. Um, to the point about runway, right? It's all well and good to portion these licenses out to social equity applicants, however you define it, whether it's race-based, whether it's zip code, whether it's income group, however defined. That's good. At the same time, what we've seen in other states like California is these licenses are often flipped to the highest bidder, bidder because it's so expensive to just comply with legislation, right? right? I don't blame these entrepreneurs who say, well, look, you know, I, even if I want to get money, if I want to get a loan, it's at some sort of usurious rate, basically, to the point where it's not even worth it to take that money um, because of state federal conflict. So why not sell, you know, why not just sell the license and let someone else deal with the complexity of actually developing the business? At the same time, you know, I've had conversations with regulators. I mean, you know, Tremaine Wright and her team, they're, they're aware of that problem. Um, and there are carve outs in legislation that will say, you know, a social, equity, a social equity license has to be transferred to another social equity applicant. So I do think that's sort of an inventive way of get, about getting around the problem. But at the same time, Chris, to your point, the state only has so much power to really help entrepreneurs get their businesses off the ground, right? Again, without institutionalized lending, um, even without venture capital, whether they want to give up some equity instead of uh, paying interest, um, it's basically impossible for them to get enough money to to create sustainable businesses. So there really is no runway, to Sarita's point. Um, you can get the license, you can open a business, but then all of a sudden you need to pay New York City or New York State real estate costs. Energy is expensive here. Labor is expensive. CapEx is expensive. Getting the materials is expensive. And to the point where you know, you're already probably going to debt before your business is making any sort of revenue. Um, I think it's very difficult. Also, you know, New York's plan, not to sort of discredit it, um, it's a little bit thin on details, right? It's public-private partnership. Chris, as you said, it's not really clear where the private money is coming from. They have a lot of sort of projections about how much tax revenue this is going to bring in. But that being said, it's like they don't even plan to open the industry until 2023. So that's, you know, 18 months of, uh, uh, you know, tax revenue that's going uncaptured. To the third point, you know, not to, it, it's become sort of politicized, this debate between safe banking and, and social equity initiatives, right? I don't want to weigh into that. You know, I don't want to sort of like reveal what my opinion is, but I do think the reporting shows that uh, people who understand how to run businesses and the challenges running businesses want Safe Banking Act. People who, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> are maybe of the side that capitalism is bad and evil uh, generally don't want the Safe Banking Act. Um, and, you know, I'm not trying to be coy there, but I am saying that like MSOs have access to capital right? It's not a problem for them. They can get money at rates that are higher than other industries, but not exorbitantly high to the point where it's not worth them raising money. Um, You know, a lot of social equity applicants cannot get that money. Um, And they're the ones that need it. And they're the ones that safe banking can really, really help. Yeah, that's, I think you, I think you nailed it there. Um, And, you know, you, you raise an interesting point on the ability of social equity licensees to flip their licenses. Um, I think that's just a fascinating debate. I saw it play out here in Illinois where there was, you know, there was a real push to say that, um, you know, if you have a social equity license, you can't sell it. And there was a ton of pushback from social equity applicants in particular who were saying like, well, wait a minute, like, if somebody else wins a license, like if this white guy over there goes and wins a license and he could sell it for $5 million, you're saying, I can't do that. $5 million will change my life. Right. If someone's going to give me five million bucks for a piece of paper like that changes my life, I could put that to work in my community. I can make investments. Right. That's like that's real wealth. And I don't have to go out and actually like run a difficult business and compete against all these you know, multi-state operators. So it's really hard. It's, it's really hard to say to folks that, well, other people can can sell their licenses. But because you're black, you can't because we want black owned businesses. Ridiculous. It, it, it makes it. I mean, it makes no sense. Like you said, like that is for some people that is that a lot of people that's life changing money and i know people who've gone through the whole licensing process to get the license and they are worn out they are so defeated they are so tired 
you know, Absolutely. and now it's like, oh, shucks. Now I got to run. They, right. And, it, and, and if you say that, and if you say they're only allowed to sell it to other equity operators, they're going to get less money for it. Right. There's going to be it could just if for one for, for one reason, because as we've talked about, equity operators tend to have ac less access to money to begin with. Uh, right. By 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 design. Right. That's the whole point of making them an equity applicant. Um, and, you know, and, and number two, you're just you're reducing the pool of potential buyers, um, which which, you know, it's just basic supply and demand is going to drive the price down. And you're right. Like there are people who are exhausted. There are people with really good reasons. I, I actually worked with a, a group here in Chicago. Uh, a social equity licensee here in Chicago um, that, you know, was really being driven by one young man, um, right? Uh, a person of color had a, had a, you know, had a cannabis arrest when he was young. This was his vision driving force. His mother was, was heavily involved in helping to sort of bankroll this. And while the application was pending, this young man passed away, he died from COVID, um, you know, uh, fairly early in the pandemic. And so they found themselves with this license, but the person who was going to operate it and run the thing wasn't there anymore. The mom now basically owned it. She has her own business. She didn't want to open a dispensary. Right? She was, and so she figured, well, let's monetize this. And she actually wanted to use the money to put into a foundation in her son's name, right, to go to support other sort of social equity related causes. Like, how could you turn around and say to that person, you can't do that or you can only sell it to another equity applicant where you're not going to make as much money? So it's, it's, look, it's difficult and I understand the sentiment and I agree with the sentiment, right? You want more more diverse views and more diverse people operating these businesses, but you also can't hamstring them um, in a way that you're not going to hamstring a, you know, a white operator or an MSO. Um, and, and it's sort of that dynamic where we also see the rise with these kind of, you know, predatory partnerships, right? Where you have, um, you know, a group, a, a capital group come in and say, you know, because they can't buy the license outright, they can come in and buy 51% of it. Um, and then they write this contract to sort of sideline the actual e equity applicant out from a lot of the revenue underneath them. Mm -hmm. um, again, that's because of the ability to pay savvy lawyers, uh, to pay consultants, to pay people that that sort of know how to deal with the Byzantine complexities of, of uh, you know, state legal cannabis. Um, and so, you know, I do think that is a system that's sort of ripe for abuse, uh, to say the least. That being Absolutely. said, you know, again, we, we do have enough history, right? New York is being deliberate and deliberately slow to try and learn from what, what's worked and what hasn't worked. And I do think they have a quality team in place to, to try and figure out these issues. At the same time, they're not going to get it right on the first strike. Um, yeah. I think that's clear. And yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And 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 look, to be fair to the regulators, like they 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 genuinely seem to be trying to do the right thing here. Um, and you know, they're and they're and they're concerned about things they should be concerned about. Um, it's just hard, right? There's only so much a state regulator can do to, you know, to write to, to write these issues. And it's for me at least, it comes back to like we need federal reform. And without federal reform, you know, and it's not to say federal reform is a panacea, right? Like the problems of capitalism are the problems of capitalism. If you make capital available, it's going to be more available to, uh, you know, to, to rich white entrepreneurs than it's going to be to equity operators. Um, but right now, the only real source of capital available to most equity operators are those rich white companies or rich white owned companies. Um, and that's, that's just, that's just not a tenable situation. Um, all right, well, we're going to leave that there because we do have one more segment, um, and uh, we'll kick it back to Shay here for another word from our sponsors. This week, we're glad to have the support of our friends over at The Atlantic Farms of Portland, Maine, which is known around town for their unique medical marijuana dispensary slash gas station where you can fuel up on all the things you need to get down life's road. Pop over to theatlanticfarms.com today to browse their extensive menu of top-notch Maine marijuana products, all available at hugely affordable prices. That's theatlanticfarms.com. If you do stop in, tell them I said hello.
Okay, we're back. Uh, well, let's move from uh, Mississippi and New York way around the other side of the world where uh, Thailand uh, has become the first Asian country to decriminalize recreational cannabis. Now, given Thailand's historic relationship with the cannabis plant over thousands of years, it still comes as a bit of a shock to learn that the country's latest decrim efforts, um, or to learn of the country's latest decrim efforts, because of the largely prohibited use of marijuana until 2018 when they first passed a medical law. According to a Forbes article by Dario Sabagi, very soon Thai people will be free to consume cannabis for personal use without fear of punishment. Once residents notify their local government, they'll be allowed to grow their own for personal plants at home. So in many ways, Thailand is ahead of a lot of states here in the United States. Uh, 120 days after the original passage of the law, changes will go into effect, uh, meaning that uh, folks can still be punished until then. So uh, if anyone in Thailand is uh, listening to the show, I don't know if we have any Thai listeners, but if we do, um, wait about four months before you go out and, and smoke. Don't want to, uh, or smoke in public at least. You don't want to take a risk there when it's coming. Um, but it's coming. So, uh, Jeremy, this article mentions a potential for tourist attractions in Thailand. Um, do, you, do you think this means that we'll eventually be able to travel to Thailand and legally experience the, uh, the, the mythical coveted chocolate Thai stick? As someone who spent a good portion of uh, their 23rd year backpacking through Thailand, I want to say that uh, it is already it is already a well-known tourist attraction in places like <laughs> Chiang Mai and the islands. So uh, legal or not, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely there to experience. No, but that being said, on a more serious note, uh, this is a huge sea change, right? It's the first Asian country to decriminalize cannabis. Um, and Chris, like you said, well, it's going to take 120 days to go into effect. I mean, Think of the importance of that. You know, Indonesia, which is neighboring across a body of water, uh, you know, they will still imprison people for possessing small amounts of cannabis. They've yeah, actually they'll, 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 people. They'll, yeah, yeah. They'll, yeah, they'll cane your ass for it. Right. No, I mean, they, they, they like uh, a couple of years ago, I mean, more than a couple of years ago now, but they, they, they execute drug dealers in that country, right? And so just think of the symbolism of that. Um, so that's number one. Number two is... You know, based on my reading the tea leaves, it is sort of a stepping stone to creating a commercial cannabis industry in Thailand, right? Um, while right now, you know, the top regulator said something like, uh, you know, cannabis should be used for medicinal purposes, um, you know, even though it's decriminalized, we, we think you should be using it like a traditional medicine. Like they're saying that, but I think the undercurrent is that, you know, Thailand is a huge tourism industry. A lot of the people that go to Thailand are people that also would like to consume cannabis. And so, you know, you can read the tea leaves, the writings on the wall. Um, I do think they're going to be opening up this market. You know, that being said, it's like still when you go to places like Chiang Mai, um, there's just fields of pot like <laughs> around the city. And so it's not too different from what's already going on. Um, it's just a little bit more regulatorily clear, I should say. But there is also a history of, of, you know, tourists getting, you know, caught up with local police for, for cannabis, right? It's been, if nothing else, a, you know, and sometimes a way for police to extract bribes uh, from tourists who they know are carrying money. Um, and if they're not willing to do that, right, they might get caught up in the Thai prison system, which could be, I'm sure, quite scary and harrowing for, you know, a Western tourist. I'm sure it'd be plenty scary and harrowing for, for, for a Thai citizen, let alone uh, somebody who's not from there. Um, but yeah, no, you're probably right. What do you think, Sarita? I mean, do you think this is a precursor to the first, uh, the first legal Asian cannabis market? Listen, this is so exciting. I mean, one of my fears uh, is being locked up abroad. I don't know if you guys ever saw that show. <laughs> Still um, scary. Yeah. Yeah. Great show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so for me, you know, going into Thailand and even thinking about consuming anything was never even a thought. Um, clearly, I need to hang out with Jeremy a bit more often because he knows all. He knows probably everywhere not. we can go. <laughs> probably okay. Like, <laughs> but I think, um, you know, like, like Jeremy said, I think this is a, a huge opportunity. Uh, Thailand is a huge tourist attraction and this makes so much sense. Sense. I mean, people go to Thailand to party and to relax. And now there's a possibility that I can I can smoke some weed and do that as well. Like you're you're never gonna get people to leave. I think this is great. And you know, Chris, to your you know, what cheap. you were saying, like, why would I ever leave? Um, but also the fact that they're able to grow, and like you said, there's still so much hang up on home grow. It this is crazy. But um, I think. I think it also speaks, um, it, this is strictly my opinion, but I think that could also speak to just the fact that they look at this plan a bit may, uh, more holistically. 
Um, so, you know, just being able to just grow, you know, it's, it's not, you know, we, we don't really necessarily, we don't want to go to a dispensary. We're not really doing all of that, but like the opportunity to just grow it in my house and use it, you know, traditionally how we have used it. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. So I think this is really exciting and it was great news to hear. Yeah, I think it's awesome. I mean, it, it really can't be understated how bad cannabis laws are by and large across Asia. Um, right. And that includes that includes Asian countries that people generally consider more a little more like, quote unquote, Western right? Japan, I would, uh, Japan being the biggest example. Right. I mean, cannabis laws in Japan are super strict. Um, right. China, it's not good. I mean, Asia is you know, Asia and Africa by and large, are the continents that have been you know, pretty much left out of this discussion around um, uh, cannabis reform, cannabis policy reform. I mean, there's been virtually none. So uh, I think that that you know, a country like Thailand taking this first step, you know, is is, is you know, like like Colorado being the first state in the U.S. is going to allow other people in the region to experience what legal cannabis looks like firsthand, um, and that may set off a domino effect, or at least we hope it will, um, for the rest of Asia. Um, but let's move this along. We got one more story. It's kind of a silly one, but uh, but uh, let's let's get this one done here relatively quickly. Uh, and this one comes out of the state of Ohio, where Haley B. Miller of the Columbus Dispatch reports that of the nearly fifteen hundred applicants for new dispensary licenses, almost two hundred have their eyes on twelve former family video locations throughout the state. A family video, for those of you who uh, are, are too young to remember, was the counterpart or one of the counterparts to Blockbuster Video, uh, which some of you may also be too young to remember. Uh, but back during a time when people went to the store to rent videos, um, if you remember Blockbuster Nights, uh, I'm uh, er, er, yeah. If you remember Blockbuster Nights, I'm sorry to date you. Um, I do. I'm old enough. Um, uh, but only with only 73 new dispensaries up for grabs in Ohio. Um, and we should be expecting to hear the results of those in the coming weeks. Uh, after a lottery drawing, the latest addition would bring the total dispensary count to 130 in the Buckeye State, um, presumably with a number of those being in former family video, and maybe blockbuster video locations. So, uh, Jeremy, do you find this odd um, you, or, or peculiar? Like, what is it about vacant video stores that you think is attractive, particularly attractive to cannabis retailers? You know, I think it's two things. It's parking and they're available, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can park right up front and I think they're open. I don't, no one's renting movies in, in physical locations anymore. And so why not uh, buy up that real estate for probably what amounts to pennies on the dollar uh, compared to the heyday of Blockbuster in the, I don't know, late 90s or whenever that was, a little before my time. <laughs> Oh, I've spent a lot of time at Blockbuster videos. And uh, actually, well, growing up in New York City, it, it, you know, there, there weren't many Blockbusters around uh, back then. There were local video stores. You had cool video stores. Yeah, yeah we had cool <laughs> until, until Blockbuster broke into the New York market and killed all of them, uh, which was uh, which was a shame to see. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, it's it's they have great parking. They have good square footage. Um, and they're, you know, there are plenty available because no one's opening video stores anymore. Uh, I don't know, Sarita, you think any, anything profound to add on this topic of like why video stores seem to be a, a, a destination for aspiring cannabis entrepreneurs? <laughs> Nothing profound to add at all. <laughs> I, I was just like, Ohio still had blockbusters. Like, why hasn't anyone already purchased this real estate? I have no idea. <laughs> None point. at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that is. I was actually wondering the same. That is kind of the weird thing here for me is like, I, like it, it's been a, it's been a minute since like family video or blockbuster video was a thing. Like, how are these locations still available? I would think they'd all been taken by by somebody, like a uh, spin class or something. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It's a bit bit yeah, a bit Shake odd. But... I can think of. I don't get it. I, don't yeah, I mean, name it. any business, right? They, they could have, yeah. they, they probably could have been in there. Uh, anybody that likes, you know, parking and access, uh, <laughs> you, you could probably be in that facility. Um, and I think one of, one of them had like, one was specific, like a lot of people wanted a location in like Dayton, Ohio as well from, from what I saw. And I Googled, I was like, well, what is big in Dayton? I, the most I saw was like an Air Force museum. I didn't see anything, you know, pretty outstanding. You know, is it a college town? I, I have, I am lost. I am stuck. Well, it's probably the zoning. Uh, I mean, being realistic, okay. I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these, a lot of cities and a lot of towns, uh, when it comes to where 
cannabis stores and, and cannabis facilities can be um, can be cited. Um, it's the zoning is extremely restrictive. Um, yeah, and, but you know, so it, many on that particular one that that has to be like the one. That, that would, I, well, I but at that. times, there, at times, I mean, I, I have done this before where you, you want to go into a town and there's literally one property available in the entire town or an entire section of town, right? The zone may be technically bigger, but, you know, most of those buildings are occupied. They're not for sale. Mm-hmm. If they're unoccupied, a lot of landlords won't rent to a cannabis business. And so you find yourself in a situation where there may only be one or two properties available. Um, and if you've got a, you know, a family, if it's still a former family video site, right, it's probably been available for a while and so you may have a landlord who's more willing to play ball in terms of either you know, mm-hmm. renting or, or leasing um so i'm guessing that's where that that's, that's where a that good point from. um but all right well that's you know again kind of silly uh but um but we'll, we'll we'll leave it there at that one i think it's a good place to wrap up our final segment we'll take one more break and we'll come back with finishing moves We're back. Now it's time for finishing moves. Finishing moves. Finishing moves is the part of our show where we can talk about anything we want, cannabis related or otherwise. So, Sarita, what is your inaugural Marijuana Today finishing move? My finishing move will be to tweet the History Channel to ask them if we can get a more consecutive schedule for ancient aliens because I, I'm tired of, like, it's inconsistent, and that's not what I signed up for. I'm like, what is happening with this program? So that is what I'm going to be doing on today. I hope this social media person is ready because I've had it. I've had it. I mean, the, the first couple seasons of that show are, like, really good. It, it got a little... It's getting a little out there. Uh, I think uh, I, 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 yeah, I don't watch it regularly anymore. But um, but uh, the, the first season or two, for those who haven't seen it, it, it it's it's quite interesting. Um, all right, that's awesome, Serena. Appreciate that one, uh, Jeremy. What's your uh, what's your finishing move? Oh, mine's mine's way less fun. Um, the number one question people ask me when I tell them about what my job is is when the U.S. is federally going to legalize marijuana. Stop asking me that. I, I have no idea. I, I just don't know. If I knew, I, I'd, you know, I'd probably be a rich man, but I don't and I'm not. And so just stop asking me. Like, you can read the polls. You can, you can see what lawmakers are saying. The political process is impossible to predict. I have no ability to do that. And so just stop asking me. And that's my finishing move. Period. Yeah. Cosign on that one. Um, I get asked that all the time. And there's no answer to that question, right? But I'd, I'd be a far wealthier person if I knew the answer to that question. Um, yes, uh, my uh, for my finishing move, I'm gonna I'm gonna call attention to the bloodbath that has been the cannabis stock market of the last uh, the last few weeks. Um, for those who've been following, it's been a really really bad time for cannabis stocks. Um, I think most cannabis companies are worth about a quarter less than they were worth just uh, just about at the beginning of this year, about a month ago. Um, uh, but you know. I, I'm going to look at the, the, the bright side on this, which is, and, you know, I, I, I preface this with I'm not a stockbroker um, uh, or, or anything like that, and I'm not give, certainly cannot give uh, professional advice, but, like, I think this is a really good time to start buying cannabis stocks, right? These prices are as low as they've been in a long time. Um, they're not quite at the lows that they hit in uh, early 2019, right after the big crash of 2018, um, but they're not far off. Um, and they're, you know, almost everybody's worth like less than half of what they were at the height of uh, the beginning of last year. And they, I was thinking about this earlier. I was on a phone call and talking through this a little bit. And, you know, if you look at what happened last year, everybody's stock prices shot way up at the beginning of the year. And it happened right after... Um, 
the Senate elections when it became clear that the that the that the Senate was going to flip to the Democrats. And so I think the the market basically baked in the fact that safe banking was going to pass into those prices at that time. And as the year has gone on and over the last year, as that hasn't happened and there's been no real movement in Congress, the, the stocks have trickled down, trickled down, trickled down. They've started to bottom out a little bit more now. Um, but I think what that shows us is that those prices that we saw in early 2021 is probably what we where we can expect these uh, these stock prices to go after safe banking passes. Um, and I still think there's a better than not chance that we get safe banking this year. I don't think the Democrats will go a full congressional term without getting anything done. And I think it's probably the only thing they can get done, likely by adding um, some uh, some some restorative justice or social justice or uh, expungement provisions into it in, a, in, in as part of an amendment to a broader bill. Um, and if that happens, I think these, you know, you may see these stocks be worth you know, double what they're worth today. Um, so, you know, if folks have some expendable income, I would always say never bet anything that you can't afford to lose. Um, but, uh, you know, if folks have a little bit that they want to make a bet in the cannabis industry. And remember, we don't, ha we don't have safe banking. It's not federally legal yet. There's still a lot of states left to legalize. The vast majority of states are left to legalize. So there's really only room for growth in the cannabis industry. And with these stocks at a, you know, close to all-time low, um, now is probably a pretty good time to think about placing a few bets. Um, so, uh, yeah, we'll leave it there. Um, well, that's it for today. I want to thank our guests, uh, Jeremy Burke and especially Sarita Wright. Your first time you made it. What'd you think? <laughs> it was awesome. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Chris, for having me. Absolutely. Well, we look forward to having you back. You did an awesome job. I'm sure listeners appreciate it. Uh, I want to offer a thank you to Shay Gunther, as always, for producing the show. A big thanks to all of our sponsors for their continued support in keeping this podcast on the air. Thank you to Overclock Remix for the tunes they, uh, they give us to use on the show. Uh, please subscribe, share, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts and wherever, or wherever else you get your podcasts so that others can find us and join the Marijuana Nation. I hope you have all enjoyed this episode of Marijuana Today and have a wonderful marijuana tomorrow. One take, Shay. One take.